Chapter 22, Paul's Defense Before the Jews At this point it may pay us to review Paul's progress in preaching the truth, for it would soon lead him to preach in Rome also. After all, the last seven chapters of Acts covers in considerable detail Paul's arrest and subsequent doings, which would finish in his being set free in Rome. This must be a very important sequence, essential to his gaining toleration for the preaching that would eventually so affect the empire that it would become Christian. It was this preaching by the arrowless bowman riding the white horse of peace that went forth conquering and to conquer, that caused idolatry to lose favour in the empire because of its want of reason and its grossly immoral practices. Revelation 6 verse 2 In the beginning of this record, Luke has informed us that, beginning at Jerusalem and Judea, the gospel must be spread into all the world. Early Jewish doctrinal opposition Despite a degree of political toleration for a while, because of Gamaliel's counsel, contributed to the spreading of the gospel and to a separation from Judaism. The Apostle Paul endorsed this separation when he wrote of the need to leave law and temple before the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. His words mark the final call to separation from the Lord of Moses. He writes in Hebrews, We, we Jews, have an altar whereof they, the priests, have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp on the Day of Atonement, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Hebrews 13 verse 10 to 14. This is a remarkable change effected in Saul of Tarsus by Stephen's reasoning from the Scriptures and the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory on the road to Damascus. Through this man the gospel was sent into all the world. Peter's use of the key to understanding entrusted to him by the Lord in preaching to Cornelius, his household and his friends led the way to inclusion of Gentiles to the faith. Matthew 16, verse 19. Paul, as he became, was now free to pursue his God-given calling of preaching to the Gentiles. Though it became necessary to reconcile his conversion of Gentiles without the observance of circumcision and the law, with the law-abiding brethren in Jerusalem and Judea, as we find in Acts chapter 15. For this venture to be successful throughout the empire, Roman toleration and protection must be gained. This the Jews vigorously opposed, continually stirring up the people and even the mob. 
Paul was imprisoned, stoned, beaten, but never subdued. Generally, the Roman authorities were favourable to Paul. At Corinth, sense prevailed when the proconsul Gallio rightly saw that the opposition was based on Jewish, not Roman law, and drove the Jews from the judgment seat. Gallio's decision had far-reaching consequences as far as permission to preach without hindrance was concerned. Yet his was only a regional permission. To be universally effective, permission must come from the emperor in Rome itself. But who could petition the emperor? Who would even dare to do so? Only one. The man chosen of God to bear Jesus' name before kings we find in Acts 9 verse 15. By Acts chapter 22, the time had come. Even so, Paul was an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as he says in Philippians 3 verse 5, and his speaking in Hebrew, Greek Hebraeus dialectos, caused the crowd to give him their full attention. Paul, though born in Tarsus, had spent his school years in Jerusalem, where his sister resided. We read that in Acts 23 verse 16. He probably spoke Greek in Tarsus and then Hebrew and Aramaic in Jerusalem. As a Roman citizen, he probably also knew some Latin. In the same way that Stephen opened his defence, Paul began, Mend, brethren and fathers, hear ye my defence which I now make unto you. Stephen continued with Abraham's history. Paul continued with his own history, emphasising his Jewishness and zeal in the law. He was a member of the covenant people, had been taught by the greatest teacher of his day, and was zealous toward God. Note that he does not say, zealous for the law, but lifts his argument onto higher ground. What is more, he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel. That is, as Saul, he had sat in the front row of the class immediately before his teacher as the star pupil. He was thoroughly versed in the scriptures and in scribal tradition. His zeal, the word carries the implication that he was prepared to use violence to defend the Torah, his zeal, led to his bitter and violent persecution of the followers of this way. Compare John 14, verse 6. Even unto death. He bound men and women, delivering them to prison. What did he care for their unfortunate children, now abandoned, in many cases orphaned? This was the same man who would later write to the Thessalonians, but we are gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. And to Timothy, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth.
What had made Saul of Tarsus change? How is it that he could later write, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, in Romans 10 verse 2, a position Paul understood well. The dramatic change came as he approached Damascus about noon. Paul never forgot his responsibility for murder. He says, For I am the least of all the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the ecclesia of God. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. Though like David he chastened himself throughout his life, his sin was forgiven and therefore will not be remembered at the judgment seat. Our sins, once forgiven, are forgotten by our God. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us, we read in Psalm 103, verse 12. It was the appearance of Jesus Christ to him that led to Paul's divine commission. The law had been given through Moses. How much more profitable was it then that a revelation should be given through one who had risen from the dead and was exalted to his father's right hand? Paul is implying that his preaching and practice was not opposed to divine law, but actuated by a further revelation from God. The listening crowd of worshippers raised no objection to this idea. Their obedience to the law rested on the fact that God had given it. Their duty now was to examine Paul's claims to a further revelation, his obedience to which had changed his life so dramatically. All the council and the high priest could testify to Paul's persecuting zeal. His companions on the journey to Damascus could testify to the bright light, far brighter than even the midday sun, though they heard, but did not understand, the voice of him that spake, saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth, literally Jesus the Nazarene, used only on three occasions, whom thou persecutest. The Lord confirms the principle that, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me, Matthew 25 verse 40, and compare verse 45. Similarly, Paul wrote, When ye sin so against the brethren, ye sin against Christ, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 12. In retelling the story of his conversion, Paul describes Ananias as a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt at Damascus. The Jews cannot take exception to anything that Paul says as he emphasises the unimpeachable characters of Ananias and those involved with Jesus Christ. And God must have been with Ananias, for he miraculously restored brother Saul's sight. As Peter had truly said to the elders, We are his witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, 
which God hath given to them that obey him, in Acts 5, verse 32. The truth was, God had chosen Paul to know his will and to see that a just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. Saul did not choose to be what he was of his own volition, any more than we do. He was chosen by the God of our fathers. A phrase again emphasizing the idea of continuing the divine revelation over the centuries, and thereby denying that he had apostatized, but remained faithful to the one true God of his fathers. It would not be until completion of the apocalypse that this revelation would be complete. Church claims of additional revelation are false, as are those of various sects and non-Christian religions, despite their so-called holy books. The Bible is the word of God, and there is no other. In referring to Jesus as the just one, Paul takes us back to Peter's statement, the holy one and the just, made before the council in Acts 3 verse 14. Though Paul would really have in mind Stephen's words, Acts 7 verse 52, just, righteous, or right conduct is here applied to Christ. He is the Holy One of Psalm 16, who is not suffered to see corruption. The prophet Isaiah says he is a just God and a Saviour in chapter 45 verse 21. In the future, this is his name whereby he shall be called, Yahweh our Righteousness. Jeremiah 23, verse 6. Therefore the word just or righteous is also used of the saints whose sins are repented of and forgiven. Paul not only heard the voice of his mouth on the road to Damascus, but also in subsequent visions he mentions, and probably when in Arabia, in Galatians 1, verse 17 and 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, his Lord had been a faithful witness, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, and Paul would continue the same witness before kings. But first he must arise and be baptised to wash away his sins. Forgiveness is not only conditional on baptism, but also on calling on the name of the Lord in prayerful confession of sin in the spirit of Psalm 116. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. Depart far hence unto the Gentiles. Far from being opposed to the temple and its worship, Paul had actually gone there to pray. Whilst in a trance he had a vision of the Lord warning him to flee quickly out of Jerusalem. Paul did not see the need to flee, knowing that the people were well aware of his part in the death of the martyr, Greek martyrs, a witness, the martyr Stephen, and the ensuing persecution of the saints. He reasoned that his previous opposition would make his testimony all the more powerful and compelling.
The Lord, of course, knew better. And Paul bowed to the divine will that he should go far hence unto the Gentiles. The phrase here reminds us of Peter's statement in the temple at Pentecost, that the promise of salvation should be extended to Gentiles afar off, in fulfilment of the Lord's command that they should be witnesses to him unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 2 verse 39 and Acts 1 verse 8. The point is, however, that Paul's divine commission as ambassador to the Gentiles was received in the temple itself. Ephesians 6 verse 20. Despite this, Paul's mention of Gentiles was too much for the angry mob. It seemed to confirm their suspicion that he had taken a Gentile into the temple. They cast off their clothes, threw dust in the air and shouted, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. It was almost a case of crucify him, crucify him. They were moved to jealousy by the inclusion of Gentiles in the hope of Israel, as Moses had foreshadowed in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. Nothing more could be said in the face of such a passion of rage. The Roman soldiers took the bruised and battered Paul, still bound with two chains, into the fortress of Antonia. There he was bound with thongs so that they could examine him by scourging. A free-born Roman. There being no purpose to be served by further suffering, Paul raised the matter of the illegality of scourging an uncondemned Roman. Hearing this, the centurion went and warned the chief captain, the Chiliarchos, ruler of a thousand, Claudius Lysias. He then came himself to interview Paul, for the Porcian and Julian laws not only prohibited such a flogging of a Roman, but prescribed severe penalties for any who dared to do so. Was Paul a Roman? Yes, and free-born. The chief captain had only achieved his citizenship by paying a large bribe to an official. He was probably a freed slave who received his citizenship during the reign of the Emperor Claudius. Lysias' first name, Claudius, indicates that he received his citizenship under that emperor. It had been common to use the emperor's name under such circumstances. For Paul to be a freeborn Roman, Paul's father must be Roman. To be a Jew in Old Testament times, one had to have a Jewish father. An example of this is Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, born to his Egyptian wife. But times were changing, and Jewish descent was beginning to be counted from the mother also. Timothy, for example, had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. Saul of Tarsus may have been born of a mixed marriage, but more likely, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, both parents were Jews. He was the son of a Pharisee, he says in chapter 23, verse 6. His father had dual citizenship. 
Being a Roman, his name would have been recorded on a register in Rome, as well as the citizen registry at Tarsus. His citizenship status exempted Paul from emperor worship and participation in official Roman cults such as the worship of Roma. To settle the matter quickly, Claudius Lysias summoned the Sanhedrin to appear before him the next day, so that he might better understand the charges against his prisoner. This was not to be a trial. As a Roman, his trial must be before the Roman procurator Felix.